0: Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, Hope Chapel. Is it good to be together? Yes, of course it's good to be together. Are we having a good summer? Wonderful. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our sojourn through the book of Acts and to read along with me what Luke writes beginning with verse 1. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 12 from Acts chapter 13 this morning. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, "'Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, "'full of all deceit and villainy, "'will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? "'And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, "'and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. "'Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, "'and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. "'Then the proconsul believed,' when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, church? Well, you'll notice on your bulletin a new title for the current mini-series in Acts, and that is A New Mission, and I think it's fitting that we kind of commence our new section, our new mini-series as we've broken the book of Acts up this weekend, because just last weekend we had as a church... Um, our annual missions weekend. And how many of you were here to hear Moran Rosenblatt, who came back to us from Israel, come and speak? We also commissioned our our Hope for Swaziland, uh, Eswatini team, and I had the great privilege of praying for them Friday morning before they went to LAX, and they're currently on the ground in Africa um, doing God's work. And and so, we've got like all these missions things going on in our midst, and it just so happens that we're kind of providentially beginning um, a new section of Acts that represents Paul's three missionary journeys. And so, this morning, we're going to be looking at the very beginning of Paul's first missionary journey in the book of Acts here in chapter 13. So, I want to look at our text pretty quickly, and I want to note that it, it opens with a kind of bittersweet parting at the church in Antioch. So, it begins with a parting, and the focus of Luke is on the people of God, on that local church in Antioch. And so, he says in verse 1 that there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And Luke's point in describing the church this way and kind of enumerating these five leaders in that church at Antioch is to demonstrate the diversity uh, uh, that's been built into the church, the diversity of leadership, and the diversity of giftings in the church. So, as Acts has unfolded and as the gospel has spread, we're now starting to see as a natural consequence of people receiving the gospel, people from all different walks of life, from completely different cultures, from different religious backgrounds, from different um, social contexts, all coming to faith in Jesus and being united under His headship as members of a local church, and we see that diversity represented here in the leadership at the Church of Antioch, which again was the capital of of, uh, the Syrian region and the Roman Empire. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, and so God's church is growing. Now, I want to provide some context. If you remember from uh, a few weeks ago, I did uh, chapters 11 and chapters 12 and, and so this weekend, we're back in Antioch, and how did we get here? Well, we saw back in chapters 11 and 12 that the Word of God was spreading, and people were being saved, and they were being added, numbers were being added to the Lord, and the Word of God spread up to Antioch. And the apostles in Jerusalem get word that people in Antioch, um, non-Jews, Gentile peoples are being saved, they're coming to faith in Jesus. And so they're like, we've got to check this out. So they dispatch Barnabas to go up to Antioch to minister to those believers and to help pastor that church. Now, he gets there, and what does he do? He starts preaching the word. He starts proclaiming the gospel, and then even more people get saved. The church is growing quickly, and as the church is growing quickly, he's like, man, I need help. There's a lot of people to pastor, and so rather than kind of hoarding the leadership for himself, what he does is he goes off himself, and he tracks down Saul of Tarsus, and he brings Saul back down. Again, Saul was once persecuting the church, and then Jesus confronted him, and he's transformed, and so he's off doing his thing. Barnabas goes and finds him, brings him back to Antioch, and here's the thing. Saul and Barnabas partner together, and they put down roots in that church at Antioch, that emerging church, and they pastor those people for over a year. So as they pastor those people for over a year, they're building relationship with them. They're getting to know them. They're like their spiritual fathers. They're their shepherds. And so, where do we pick up here in chapter 13, but where we left off in chapter 12? And Luke tells us at the end of chapter 12, and Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, they've returned to Antioch because as they were ministering together in Antioch, they saw that there was going to be a need in Jerusalem, and so the church in Antioch took an offering, and they gave it to Saul and Barnabas and dispatched them to go back down to Jerusalem to deliver that, that support, that relief in light of a famine. And so you see this beautiful picture of, of Jerusalem ministering to Antioch, and then Antioch ministering to Jerusalem. We see unity between these churches in these very different social contexts and geographical regions. But where we leave off now is Saul and Barnabas have returned from their, their relief mission. They're back in Antioch, <clears throat> and Luke is now going to turn his attention from kind of the composition of the church there to the activity, the spiritual condition of the church there. So the passage opens with a picture of the people of God in Antioch. But it quickly transitions to a picture of their prayer to God as they had gathered together. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What were the people doing in the church at Antioch? What does Luke say? They were worshiping the Lord, and they were what? Fasting. <clears throat> they're worshiping the Lord, and they're fasting. The word that's translated here, worshiping, is the, the, the Greek word is the word we get the word liturgy from, and it literally means to, to render service to the Lord. And so here we have a picture of a church that's utterly captivated with their Lord. They're captivated with Jesus. Their attention is focused on Him, and they're gathered together corporately, and they're rendering service, they're worshiping the Lord, and they're also fasting. They've adopted a posture of dependence before the Lord. So this is a picture of of a spiritually vibrant church. It's a picture of a seeking church. It's a picture of a dependent church. It's a picture of a church that is very much spiritually alive. Are you with me? Now, in the midst of that spiritual life, in the midst of that spiritual activity, we see the Holy Spirit take initiative and move. And we don't know exactly how it was communicated. Here in the text, we see that the Holy Spirit spoke. This is a good reminder that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but the Holy Spirit is a he, because we see that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. But in the midst of all this spiritual activity, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church, and whether it was through in kind of their corporate gathering and in their, their total assembly, an audible voice that they all heard, or whether it was through kind of the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that, that they all shared in common, they knew, and Luke records for us, that the Spirit moved and the Spirit spoke. And he, and he, he, he gave a command. He said, set apart for me these two men, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. So, this is very much a missions passage. But here's the thing. You don't have to go to the other side of the world to be a missionary. We walk outside the doors of our church, and guess what we are? We're missionaries. And here's the thing about how God calls us to missions work and how He calls us to service to Him. He's the one that calls us to ministry. Does that make sense? We see that the Holy Spirit is the one that calls Saul and Barnabas. They don't say, I'm going to go do this thing. I've got this really good idea. I think I've got things figured out. I got a good handle on what God wants. I'm going to go do this thing. No, that's not what happens. What we see is we see that God speaks, God takes the initiative, God is the one who calls us to ministry, God is the one who equips us for ministry, and God is the one who makes straight our paths in ministry. So, this kind of leads me to the first point that I want to draw out of this text, and that is that missionary work whether it's local or whether it's global, is initiated and authenticated by the Holy Spirit. But I want to take that one step further. Consider in this passage how God is working through the context of the local church. You see, our callings to ministry, our callings to service, are not purely individualistic. And we live in an age where we're tempted to... to subscribe to this idea of rugged individualism. It's me and Jesus, and Jesus just speaks to me, or I just learned this thing through His Word, and, and now I'm going to go act. But rather, what we see here in this passage is a vibrant body of believers And we don't see Paul Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, say to the rest of the church, hey, God told us this. Rather, we see God speaking to the whole church, and the whole church coming alongside of and affirming the call of the Holy Spirit on Saul and Barnabas' life, and then them being subsequently sent out from that community. And so as we seek to discern God's will in our lives, whether you have been called to stand up and preach and teach vocationally, or whether you have been called to shepherd a mini church, or whether you have been called to go teach in Bible school, or whether you have been called to just be a street preacher, or whether you have been called to witness to your friends and family that calling is going to be oftentimes, most often revealed and authenticated within the context of God's people as He speaks to you through His body. Does that make sense? So God speaks in the people here. And this gives rise to this this bittersweet parting between these people. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So before the Holy Spirit speaks, what is the church doing? The church is worshiping God. The church is fasting. The Holy Spirit moves and speaks to and through the people. And after the Spirit speaks, Luke tells us that they're still fasting, and that they're praying, that they're still seeking the Lord. And and in response to what God does... They lay their hands on Saul and Barnabas, and they send them off. What I want to suggest that we see in just these first three verses is a very beautiful and a very rich pattern of radical pursuit of God. We see a church that is spiritually engaged. We see a church that is spiritually focused. And we see a church that is exhibiting a radical pursuit of God and His will. And it's in the context of that togetherness spiritually, it's in the context of that that radical pursuit, that one collective heartbeat of seeking the Lord that we see God do this amazing thing and set apart Saul and Barnabas. Now Luke says that in response to the Spirit moving, they laid their hands on them. And we can be kind of confused about why we do this as Christians and why they did this in this text and similar texts. But it wasn't so much because there was a discharge of power, but there was a display of solidarity. Just as we just stood and extended our hands in agreement, um, as Jeff and Jennifer dedicated their son Dawson, we stood and we extended our hands in agreement. This was a display of solidarity by that local church, by that family. This was a tight group of people. I mean, these people had been pastored for over a year by Saul and Barnabas. And so what they do is, even though they're not going with them on this new mission, they lay their hands on them to release them to this new work. But that's their way of saying, even though we're not going with you, our hearts are still with you. Tremendous unity amongst God's people, consider the long-term relationships, consider the intimacy that had been built between Saul and Barnabas and these other pastors and leaders and all the people in that congregation, and consider for just a moment that this church was giving away their very best. They were giving away their very best. They were parting for the sake of God and for the sake of His gospel. This also implies, by the way, that the leadership that was remaining was strong, and that those men who stayed behind to shepherd that church were gifted and capable and qualified to to care for God's people. But here's the second point that I want to draw out of kind of this text, the first section of this text, and that is that missionary work is supported by the local church, Part of our purpose as a local church is to support missionaries, to to resource those who go out and, and proclaim the gospel. Now, as we look at this passage and as we've considered the first three verses, I want us to see something very important. I want us to see that everything about this sequence of events really argues That mission, whether it's mission here or mission on the other side of the world, but it argues that mission is grounded first in God's command, but it's grounded secondly in the response of a church family that is engaged in devotion. Is God growing us to be a church of devotion, a spiritually vibrant church like this church in Antioch? Now, Luke is going to turn his attention from this parting of ways for the sake of the gospel to actually what happens is Saul and Barnabas take their first steps on this new mission. So we move from the parting to the preaching. Look with me at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was just the port town on the coast that was close to Antioch. So they kind of like first we have to go to LAX and get on a plane and fly, right? First they had to go from Antioch to Seleucia to get on a boat and then they sail to Cyprus. We don't know why they went to Cyprus first. We do know that Barnabas was born in Cyprus even though he was a Greek-speaking Jew from Jerusalem. So maybe Barnabas was like, hey, let's go to where I'm from and let's start telling people about Jesus there. So they go down to the port town, they get on a boat, they sail to Cyprus. But notice Luke says that they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Holy Spirit active in commissioning them, but the Holy Spirit is with them as they go and sends them out. So they get on a boat, verse 5. And then when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So we have a map up here. And you can see that they started in Antioch, and if you follow that blue line, you'll see that they sailed to the island of Cyprus, and they, they uh, land kind of on the uh, northeastern part of the island in a, in a town called Seleucia, and in, verse, or in Salamis, and so Luke tells us that when they arrive there, when they reach their destination, what's the first thing that they do? This is like an attention check right now, yeah. Let me see if you're still with me. So they get off the boat. What do they do in verse 5? They proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So here are these two men. They've been set apart by the Holy Spirit. They've been released from ministry by their local church, sent out. They get on a boat. They go to the island of Cyprus. And as soon as they get off the boat, they're preaching the word. We sent a team off to Swaziland, and they're... Right they're right there on the ground right now, and they're ministering, and, 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 and they're, they're invested in helping build up the infrastructure there. They are helping to make clean water, fresh water available to orphans who don't have water available. They're helping to build the physical facilities uh, of a local church. Um, we're, we're partnered with a local church there, and we're doing lots of humanitarian work there. And that is, that is good, right? Should we be doing that kind of thing? Yeah, we should be. But here's the thing. Even people who don't believe in Jesus can go to Africa and can do humanitarian work, right? And so what do we see here? But we see that Saul and Barnabas get off the boat and they begin to preach the word of God. You see, that's the, that's the thing that nobody else but God's people can do in the mission field. And so thankfully... We sent out a team, and not only are they doing things that follow from the gospel, i.e., helping to build up the physical infrastructure there, but we're also partnered with a local pastor to disciple him and to encourage him and to resource him and to come alongside him and to make sure that the word of God is opened up and proclaimed there because that is the first priority of missionary work. So, what does this passage begin to show us about the focus, about the center, about the first priority? The first objective of missionary work, that leads me to my next point, that missionary work is focused first and foremost on proclaiming the Word of God. Amen? Now, these guys get off the boat. First thing they do is get down to business. They're doing what missionaries are called to do. They're they're proclaiming the Word of God. They're opening up the Bibles. They're going to all the Jewish synagogues throughout the island of Cyprus. What do you think happens when you set out to promote the Word of God, when you set out to advance the gospel. You run into opposition, don't you? And so what we see next is opposition from the world. Verse 6, "...when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos..." Now, they had gone through the whole island of Cyprus, and they had started out on the northeast part of the island, and they're going to end up on the southwest part of the island in the city called Paphos. I think we, there we go. We have the map again. So they've gone from one side to the other side, and Paphos was kind of the capital of Cyprus. It was the place where uh, the Roman rulership presided. So they come into the capital, and as they come into the capital, what do they encounter? But they, they encounter opposition. So Luke tells us that they came upon a certain magician, another magician. How many of you remember that I said I always just get assigned the weird passages, you know? And like two months ago, I got this magician. I got another magician. What are the odds? So here they are. They come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. You have to feel the irony in this, okay? He is, he is Jewish Okay? But he's a magician, and the Old Testament expressly forbid God's people from uh, participating in, uh, in magical practices, etc. It was so serious, um, God was so serious about it that it was punishable by death. But here we have this Jewish man named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar is the Hebrew Aramaic prefix meaning son of. So this guy's name is literally son of Jesus. But he's a false prophet, he's a magician, He's a doer of dark deeds. His name is Son of Jesus. Jesus, of course, means salvation, Son of Salvation. That is so ironic because really he's doing the work as the son of the devil. So here's this magician, this false prophet. He's ironically named, and he's attached himself to this very important figure on the island of Cyprus. So we see in verse 7 that This bar Jesus was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This is no small deal. This is where we're going to start, like, we're going to start moving now. This is where it starts to really get good, okay? So here's this magician. He's attached himself to this proconsul. We're told that the proconsul was the Roman ruler on the island, that this guy was a man of intelligence. He was a smart guy, and so... Because he was a smart guy, this magician had to be very crafty to have attached himself to him and to be um, to having had influence over him. But but here we see that they are they're coming together. Sergius Paulus, this ruler, he wants to hear the word of God, so he calls Saul and Barnabas to himself. And then what happens? Verse eight. But Alimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. So he had an alternate name. We don't totally understand it, but Elemus the magician opposed Saul and Barnabas as they're summoned by this man, Sergius Paulus, to share the Word of God with them. And Luke tells us that this magician was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Seeking to turn the proconsul, why would he want to turn the proconsul away from the faith? Why would he want to keep the Word of God far away from this man that he had attached himself to? Well, I think there's one sense in which he wanted to protect his position, he wanted to protect his status, he wanted to protect his influence. You see, because to be, to be connected to or associated with a person of stature like that would bring with it position, it would bring with it status in the culture, would bring with it influence, and maybe even material prosperity. So, he's a Jewish false prophet. He knows that this message is not compatible with his message. And so in order to kind of save his skin, he's trying to turn the the word of the Lord away from this proconsul. Does that make sense? But on on a deeper level, think about this. I think he's probably also trying to avoid severe punishment. See, this is the Roman proconsul. He had the authority to do with this magician whatever he wanted to do with him. And if he realized that he's been deceived, that he's been hoodwinked, that he's been manipulated, that he's been exploited, and he turns to the gospel and sees the truth, then this magician's probably going to be in very big trouble. But I think at even a deeper level, Spiritual forces of darkness are at work. You see, the enemy knows that this proconsul, this man, uh, represents something significant on the island of Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas have taken their first step in their first missionary journey, and now providentially the Lord has led, put it on this ruler's heart to seek them out, to ask them to share the gospel with him. And if he becomes saved, if he turns to Jesus, if he's converted, then guess what that's going to do for the gospel cause on the whole island? That's just going to open it up, isn't it? But if he's turned away from the faith, if he's convinced that Paul and Barnabas are charlatans, are tricksters, that they are the ones who are false prophets, what's that going to do for the sake of Christianity on Cyprus? going to make it a lot more difficult, right? So, there is in this moment very much a battle raging over the soul of this Roman proconsul, and there are eternal consequences which extend beyond just his life for the people of this island. And that leads me to kind of my next point out of this text, and that is that, that missionary work involves spiritual combat. Whether you're a missionary here domestically or you're a missionary abroad, taking the gospel, being God's mouthpiece, doing the work of an evangelist, it will always involve spiritual combat. As a matter of fact, what does Saul, who is also called Paul, what does the very same Paul in this passage say about the nature of true conflict in the Christian life? He says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle against what? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because our battle as God's people, as believers, as as couriers of the gospel, because our battle is primarily spiritual, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You see spiritual combat requires spiritual tools. Does that make sense? And that's why Paul says what he does. And this is precisely what we see Paul do in this moment. He confronts the spiritual problem in front of him on spiritual terms. And so in verse 9, we see what I'm going to refer to as a gospel rebuke. So here's this scene. On one side, you have Barnabas and Saul. On the other side, you have this Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus. In the middle, standing in between these two, you have this crafty magician, this false prophet who's seeking to undermine the gospel and turn this man away from God's truth. And so what does Saul do? But he stands up in that moment. He stands firm in that moment. And Luke tells us in verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul, that was his Roman name, Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked straight the straight paths of the Lord? I call those fighting words. I mean, this is like a pretty severe fourfold rebuke. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you're full of deceit and villainy. There is nothing good in you. You make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. You think that your path is straight, but your path actually is absolutely crooked. Strong words, right? When was the last time somebody rebuked you like that in church? I want us to just kind of consider for a moment Paul's very direct approach to this man, Elemus, bar Jesus, kind of taking into consideration our age of, of tolerance. His words seem really harsh, right? Um, but Luke is very clear at the beginning of verse nine to say that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So how do we reconcile? such strong and harsh words with the reality that Paul spoke these words from a spiritual place of being totally full of the Holy Spirit? How do we reconcile those two things? Are you with me? I want to take you back to a Washington Post article I remembered from um, back from 2012. It was an article that was written by a man named uh, Trevor Grundy, uh, and in, it was an article kind of recounting a shift in the religious landscape in Great Britain. <clears throat> and so he says this in this article. He says, At her coronation in 1953, Queen Elizabeth swore to uphold the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel, maintain the Protestant reform religion established by law, and reserve the settlement of the Church of England. Her son and heir apparent, Prince Charles, has said that he's planning a symbolic change if and when he becomes king, by taking the title, Defender of Faith. This is subtle. Not Defender of the Faith, Defender of Faith, or Defender of the Faiths, plural, to reflect Britain's multicultural and multi-faith society. So we live in an age of kind of pluralism, intolerance, and exhibited by one of the most symbolic seats, you know, in Western civilization, shifting away from any idea that there is one true faith to there are many, many faiths. I think Paul's words can be reconciled by us recognizing that he understood what Jude wrote in his letter in the third verse. Jude writes this in his letter in the New Testament. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, Paul understands that this word of the Lord, this gospel message that he is carrying with Barnabas to deliver to this Roman proconsul is the only way. It is a matter of eternal significance. Later in Jude's letter, Jude says that as they contend for the faith that they would be used by God to save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's a strong reality, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not herald God's news. May judgment be heaped upon me if I am found derelict in my duty to proclaim God's good news. Because it's not my message, it's not our message, it's His message. And here is a man who is standing in the way of God's truth, of his gospel, and the importance of the situation gave rise, and the conviction of Paul about the importance of that message gave rise in him being carried by the Spirit to offer this very strong rebuke. We can reconcile Paul's strong words with his being filled with the Spirit by recognizing that so much was at stake in this situation. I mean, again, consider what's happening this man, this Roman proconsul, his whole eternity hangs in the balance. It hangs on whether he will receive or reject the gospel message, God's Word. And Paul and Barnabas, they are, they're just commencing this, this history-altering missionary journey, missionary effort together. And Satan has sent one of his own me- messengers, one of his own workers to kind of undermine and in short circuit this this missionary effort right at the get-go to subvert the gospel. You see if he can turn the Roman proconsul away from Jesus, then he can maintain a sort of spiritual measure of dark influence over that whole island of Cyprus. Now we're tempted in our day and age, we're kind of conditioned by the pluralistic mood of our culture to view evangelism as kind of a mere exchanging of views among people of different ideologies. Does that make sense? Now, listen, before I say what I'm about to say, I want you to know that nobody's a stronger advocate for gracious and thoughtful and nuanced Christianity than me. I think that as Christians, we need to be strategic in how we minister in our culture, how we promote and share the gospel. I think we need to be thoughtful. I think we need to be nuanced. I think we need to be sensitive. But here's the thing that I think we see in this passage. Our desire for thoughtfulness and nuance must never muddy or obfuscate or eclipse the gospel as holding what, what we see as the key to eternal salvation. Does that make sense? I have two children, I have a two-year-old son, and if I as a father ever saw another man trying to peddle, peddle pornography to my young son, I would not enter into a delicate discussion with that man and debate the merits or the demerits of pornography or politely request for him to stop trying to peddle pornography to my son. What I would do instead is I would take decisive action, and if he didn't back off, I would knock him out. If a mother, how many of you are mothers, if, if one of you mothers sees her daughter about to accept a piece of candy that's been laced with heroin or, or, or cyanide, would you, would you just sit with the person trying to give your daughter that, that laced candy and, and just share your views on the subject? Or would you take decisive and urgent action? If a hotel employee discovers a fire in a room and realizes that the fire alarm has failed, and it's not gone off, and he knows that, that hundreds of occupants might be killed, he doesn't simply calmly go away not wanting to disturb the sleeping people. He takes decisive action, right? This is what we see Paul doing in this moment. He's using strong language, but he's taking decisive action because eternal matters are at stake. You see, if such drastic action is taken for kind of earthly, temporal concerns, I just gave some examples of how about a problem that has dire consequences for all eternity? We can't profess as Christians to love humanity, but then calmly stand by when we see the eternal salvation of a person for whom Christ has died jeopardized through the deception of a false teacher, or jeopardized through the deception of a corrupting influence. How do we kind of apply this? Well, I think that there's a very real sense in which as Christians, we are called by necessity, by virtue of the gospel, to have a sense of urgency for those who are perishing. And here's the bottom line. If we don't have any such sense of urgency then there's a few possibilities of why that's the case. If we don't have a sense of urgency, then maybe we just don't really believe that eternal matters are at stake. And if we don't really believe it, then maybe our heart's not really saved because that is an actual denial of the gospel. If we don't have a sense of urgency, then maybe it's not because we don't believe it, maybe it's just because we don't really care, in which case that would be indicative that our hearts are hard. Maybe we do care, maybe we do believe it, but we just won't really act on a sense of urgency. Maybe that's indicative of the fact that we have hearts that are full of fear and not hearts that are full of faith. Regardless of what the case is, we have to repent, right? We need to repent, we need to come before the Lord, we need to confess to Him that we have no such sense of urgency. And we need to beg and plead with Him to fill us with His Spirit afresh, that He would compel our hearts to to be full for the sake of His gospel and to care for those who are perishing. But we need to repent. Now, what happens next is very telling. Verse 11, Luke says, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So this is great. Like, I just spent a lot of time talking about how harsh Paul's words were, right? But as if they weren't harsh enough, he now pronounces a curse on this guy. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun. But what are the last three words? For a time. Let me ask you a question. When the risen Jesus appeared to Saul, when Saul was persecuting the church and killing Christians, and he was converted, what did Jesus do to Saul? He blinded him. And now here is Saul, set apart by the Holy Spirit, on mission, carrying the gospel, confronting the very kind of person that he once represented. He stands up to him boldly. He deals with him on spiritual terms. He expresses his conviction, and he pronounces the same curse on this man that he himself once experienced, but a curse that is for a time. And I think that the temporary blindness that this man experienced signified very much his spiritual blindness. And in a way, this temporary curse, I want to suggest, is very loving. You see, because Paul was confronted and he was cursed, but he recovered and he was converted, and a temporary curse is always better than an eternal punishment. Amen? Verse 11, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I mean, this is a true power encounter. The magician who has had the ear of the local Roman ruler, the magician who clings to his power and status, the magician who exhibits kind of proto-scientific knowledge at the time, the magician who has, you know, astrological expertise, the magician who to some degree or another exhibits some kind of supernatural power, is completely stopped in his tracks when confronted by the power of the Holy Spirit and when he is found opposing the most powerful Jesus Christ. And he is rendered just as physically blind as he was spiritually blind. And his helpless physical condition is indicative of his helpless spiritual condition. He is both physically and spiritually now a dead man walking. The man who was associating with the highest of highs on the island of Cyprus, the man who had power and influence by virtue of who he was aligned with, now has to be taken by the hand by the lowest of the low in society and led about because his life is totally and utterly contingent. Quite a change, right? We don't know what happened to this man, but we can only hope that he recognized his state and that he repented before God. The passage takes a harsh turn, but now it takes a hopeful turn. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the proconsul, he, Sergius Paulus is there, he sees all these things unfolding, he hear what, hears what Paul says, he sees what happens, he sees this curse, he, he, and he believes the Word. Now he believes it when all this stuff happens, but the reason he believes isn't because of the miraculous activity. The grammar here suggests that the reason he believes was because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was captivated by the gospel. God's truth, his very word, penetrated his heart and his mind and convicted him, and he was turned and he was changed. He was converted, he was saved, and he was made new. That leads me to my final point from this text. Missionary work bears fruit as the word of God is received. The ultimate objective of all of our missionary work is that the Word of God would go out and that as the Word of God goes out and as people hear it, that that Word of God would be received and that people would be saved. Church tradition actually suggests that this man, this Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, that after he was saved, that that he actually left a legacy of faith in His family that spanned generations on the island of Cyprus. You see, when God's Word goes out, when He commissions us to His purpose, when He sends us to carry His Word, it will be received. God doesn't waste any missionary effort. What the Spirit sets apart, the Spirit uses to accomplish the will of the Father. I want to invite the worship team up, and I want to just kind of close with this diagnostic question. You can take the lights down. So we've seen a number of people in this passage this morning. We've seen Saul and Barnabas. We've seen Sergius Paulus, and we have also seen Elimus, this magician, Bar-Jesus. Who are you like in this passage? Are you set apart? Like Saul and Barnabas? Like Saul and Barnabas, are you a son of God? Or like Alemus, are you a son of the devil? Like Saul and Barnabas, are you a recipient of Christ's righteousness? Or like Alemus, are you an enemy of all righteousness? Like Saul and Barnabas, are you full of grace and truth, full of God's word? Or like Alemus, are you full of deceit? Like Saul and Barnabas, are you walking the straight path of the Lord? Or like Lemus, are you making crooked the straight path of the Lord? Are you like Sergius Paulus, whose eternity in this passage hung in the balance, who is about to hear the Word of the Lord and, and whose, whose eternity depended upon how he responded to the Word of the Lord? You see, Scripture says that you're, you're either like Saul or Barnabas or you're like Alina, that nobody is just indifferent, that nobody's neutral. So, my question this morning for us is, is there anybody here whose eternity hangs in the balance? You see, Sergius Paulus received the Word of the Lord, he turned to Jesus, and he was saved. He was changed. He was made new. He was guaranteed that he would spend eternity with God. And so as we close, I just want to ask everybody to bow their heads, and and if God has just miraculously through this teaching this morning, by His will and according to His purpose, He has spoken to anybody here, and He's convicted your hearts, and He's shown you your need to turn to Him. He's shown you your need to repent. He has shown you your need to put your trust in Jesus, to receive the Word of the Lord, to believe in the God. If, If God has spoken to you this morning, if He's convicted you, then while nobody's watching, I just want to invite you to respond to God's initiative, to His conviction, and just to let me know that that's you and to raise your hand. Is there anybody here this morning? I see a hand over there in the back. Wonderful. Praise God. Anybody else want to respond to Jesus? I see that hand right there, wonderful, praise God. If that's you, just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I recognize that, that I'm a sinner in need of being saved, of being changed, of being made new. And this morning, you have made it clear to me that, that I need your son, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you died, that you were buried, and that you rose again on the third day, and that in your death, you paid the full penalty for my sin. And I believe that by trusting in your work on my behalf that I could be saved forever. And so I just confess that trust. I confess that belief to you this morning. I put my trust and my hope in you. I pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www. Dot hopechapel.org.